to my little friend. Hey everyone, this is episode 11 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, a.k.a. The Beretta Cast. I'm Glenn Peoples, and this is the podcast that looks at philosophy, theology, and biblical studies, and maybe even the occasional bit of politics. So I'd like to start out today uh, on a different note with a request for my listeners. Firstly, thank you for listening. Please keep listening and get as many other people to listen as possible. Secondly, if you're going to listen on a fairly regular basis, here's my request. Instead of going to my website and using the podcast player on the blog to listen to each podcast episode, can I ask that you download the MP3, there is a link there on that same site, or you can subscribe to the show with your podcatching software, whether it's iTunes or whatever it is you use. Podcatchers download the podcast episode and then store them all on your hard drive. Now the reason for this is here. When you click the play button on the blog and listen to an episode there, it uses up the same amount of bandwidth as if you actually downloaded it, but you don't have any file to show for it. So if you come back and listen to the episode again, uh, perhaps you thought it was a particularly interesting episode, it could happen. It's a bit like, in fact, it's, it's exactly like downloading it from my site again. But if you've already downloaded it, then obviously you can listen to it as many times as you like, and there's no extra bandwidth used up. The reason I ask this is that, well, like everything else in this world, bandwidth costs money. So while obviously I want you to hear every episode, just downloading it rather than using up bandwidth by listening to it online multiple times saves me the green stuff. I'll keep the episode player buttons at my blog so that people who aren't already familiar with the podcast can sample it there before deciding if they want to become regular listeners or not. Okay, now where was I before I got all self-interested? So far in this podcast we've looked at, and I'm going to look at my list of episodes thus far, we've looked at uh, introductions and complaints about the current state of evangelical scholarship, we've looked at religion in the public square. We've looked at my rewriting of Plato's Euthyphro Dilemma and Divine Command Ethics. We've looked at, gosh, we've spent three episodes looking at the subject of hell and annihilationism. We've looked at secularism and equality. We've looked at the moral argument for the existence of God, which can only mean one thing. It must now be time to look at presuppositional apologetics. In fact, this episode, episode 11 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, is entitled What is Presuppositional Apologetics? In Christian circles, the word apologetics refers to the defense of the faith, of the Christian faith. Presuppositional apologetics is one of two broad types of Christian apologetics. And I think it might help to outline briefly the other types of apologetical methods to give you a better idea of where presuppositional apologetics fits into the picture. Sometimes you get a good idea of what something is once it has been explained what it's not. 
The main perceived divide between approaches to apologetics is between approaches that are broadly evidentialist in, in, in method and approaches that are broadly presuppositional. Now, there are finer distinctions to be made, but it's my view and the view of some others much more experienced than I that pretty much every variety of apologetical method can be fit somewhere within one of those two methods, very broadly speaking. So to tell you what presuppositional apologetics is, I'll start by saying something briefly about what evidentialist apologetics is. Evidentialist apologetics consists of the attempt to provide evidence for Christianity. Now obviously any attempt to defend Christianity is going to involve the appeal to evidence, if evidence is construed broadly so that it includes just anything that counts as a reason to believe. Evidentialists then mean something more specific when they talk about evidence. Within what I'm calling a broadly evidentialist approach is a further subdivision that some make between classical apologetics and a narrower type of view that takes the name evidentialist apologetics. And I think the distinction, albeit a fairly fine distinction sometimes, between these two subgroups is very well illustrated in a book called Five Views on Apologetics. I think the fact that it is well illustrated there is due to the fact that perhaps the two best active proponents alive today of these two approaches, William Lane Craig and Gary Habermas, relax Norman Geisler, I said perhaps, essentially duke it out in a friendly way in hashing out the differences between the two approaches in this book. Bill Craig, uh, Bill as his friends call him, defends the classical method and uh, Gary Habermas defends the evidentialist method. The classical method is one employed famously by Thomas Aquinas in his Five Ways and it's used by William Lane Craig and it consists essentially of philosophical arguments for the existence of God. In Craig's case in public presentations including a recent couple of debates here in New Zealand these are the cosmological argument, that's the argument from the beginning of the universe to the existence of God, the fine-tuning argument, and the moral argument. This domain of apologetics is sometimes called natural theology because it argues from particular facts about nature to theological truths. So we'll start with some fact about the universe and then reason to belief in God, for example. If you'd like to get hold of some great apologetics resources using this method, head on over to Bill Craig's site at www.reasonablefaith.com. Classical apologetics historically has the feature of not being explicitly tailored for the defense of Christianity or any particular religion. Uh, in fact, the cosmological argument owes much of its historical development not to Christians, but to Muslim thinkers. In Craig's apologetical presentation. These arguments for the existence of God then set the scene for his next argument, the argument from the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, which is where he begins to argue specifically for the Christian faith and not just for theism. And it's here in his apologetical method that we come to evidentialist apologetics more narrowly construed. Bill Craig really combines the two methods. Evidentialism here more narrowly defined is an appeal to the facts of history in support of the Christian faith as opposed to say philosophical arguments for the existence of God. The historical facts of most interest to evidentialist apologetics are the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
Gary Habermas, for example, argues at length that the resurrection of Jesus is as historically defensible, at least, as other events from the same era that today nobody thinks twice about believing actually took place. For example, facts about, say, Alexander the Great. And you can check out his site for some really good resources at www.garyhabermas.com. Okay, that's classical apologetics and evidentialism, but presuppositional apologetics is different. And in just a moment I'll explain how. But I want to raise one question here. When most people think of Christian apologetics, they usually think of classical and evidential apologetics. Traditional arguments for the existence of God, arguments for the claim that we can trust in the New Testament accounts of the resurrection of Jesus, defenses of Christian theology against the problem of evil, and so forth. You typically, I mean you can find it, but you typically in the mainstream don't see, for example, glossy pamphlets about upcoming speaking events presenting the transcendental argument found in presuppositional apologetics. In fact, that's partly why I'm doing this episode, so you can have more exposure to that. But why don't you see this? So my question is, why isn't presuppositional apologetics getting the same mainstream coverage that other forms of apologetics get? And I have a few answers to that. Firstly, many presuppositionalists are hardcore fans of Cornelius Van Til. Uh, Cornelius, Van, Cornelius Van Til, if you didn't know, was the professor of apologetics at Westminster Theological Seminary for quite some years. Now, Van Til, for all of his fine qualities, was not a philosopher by his own admission. I mean, he says, I'm not a philosopher. Well, he said when he was alive that he was not a philosopher. He did not have a firm grasp on a number of the philosophical issues involved in his apologetical method. And, and this was the real stumbling block I kept having with him. He was not at all a very clear communicator. And to be fair to him, this may well have have had something to do with the fact that his first language was Dutch and not English, if I'm not mistaken. And in my view, sometimes as well, he simply overstated his conclusions, sometimes without really defending them adequately. And I'll say more about that later in the presentation. Unfortunately, a number of presuppositionalists aren't really what I would call presuppositionalists, they're just Vantillians by which I mean rather than delve into the issue of presuppositionalism themselves so that they can independently understand the arguments, they're just fans of Cornelius Van Til. They learn and pass on what Van Til said, regardless of how well they understand it, which means that the above shortcomings of Van Til are present in their own apologetical methods as well. Even an intellectual great, and I really do mean that, like Greg Barnson, Van Til's star pupil displayed this tendency at times, although Barnson, unlike Van Til, most certainly was a philosopher. So that's the first reason. Uh, presuppositionalists are sometimes their own worst enemies. They're just fans of Van Til who don't really grasp all the issues involved. Secondly, presuppositional apologetics is in some ways, in fact in many ways, a lot more complicated as a way of defending Christian claims. Now, don't get me wrong, I think it does contain a very strong argument, but if apologetics is meant to actually persuade people, you need more than a good argument. You need an argument that people might actually grant, and if they're 
you know, they're not going to grant it if they don't even understand it. Presuppositionalism simply lacks well-known public proponents who are able to present it to a large audience in a way that is clear and digestible. In other words, they don't have their own equivalent of Bill Craig. Now, I say this as someone who really is an admirer of Bill's work in public apologetics, but he's so good at what he does that pretty much anything that comes out of his mouth sounds persuasive. In tonight's debate, I'm going to defend two basic contentions. First, that there's no good reason to think that belief in God is true. And second, there are good reasons to think that belief in God is false. Now please, don't all start writing to Bill Craig and asking how and why he fell away from the faith. I doctored that. He didn't really say it. I just switched around the words true and false. But coming from him, it almost sounded semi-persuasive, right? Presuppositionalism, to put it crudely, by contrast, just doesn't have celebrities like that who can really step up and, and put on a presentation like that. And even when people who are generally understandable and able to present complex points of view in a simple way do speak up for presuppositional apologetics, they often just end up saying things like this. And that's what Greg Branson used to say. He said he could prove the existence of the triune God from Scripture through any uh, human experience, even if it's doubt. If you just give me doubt, Branson would say, I'll take that and prove the Christian God from, from that one experience. Because doubt presupposes certainty. Certainty is only possible because of logic. Logic is only possible because of God. And hence, you get the God of Scripture. Now, that was Jonathan Goundry, a co-host with Gene Cook on the Narrow Mind radio show. Now, these guys don't themselves ever present an argument for the truth of those claims that you just heard. And actually, neither did Branson despite what many might think. It's a simple and clear set of claims, all right, but it doesn't properly summarize a good presuppositional apologetics. In fact, for what it's worth, I think that what he says here is actually false in at least one key way, and is just repeating some of the errors of Van Til. In short, the only way to make, to really make presuppositionalism sound simple and digestible is to seriously downgrade the quality of its apologetic by presenting it as a pretty bad argument, which is what we just heard. Sorry, Jonathan. I do love the show that you guys do, but this is what you get for saying that Greg Bounton is no longer a theonomist because now he's dead and he knows better. I was listening. Thirdly, presuppositionalism can be as cult-like as the only true Scotsman allowed club, or worse yet, a Mac users group. I'm not kidding. If you want to belong to their club, at least for some of them, it's not enough that you endorse a transcendental argument. No, you've got to firstly swear that you'll never utter a word in defense of classical or evidential apologetics. We can't have you being an apologetical adulterer now, can we? You've got to write off any other variety of transcendental argument that didn't come from Van Til, so it's goodbye Alvin Plantinger, and you've got to make sure that no matter what else you do, you reserve the strongest and most obnoxious and acrimonious rhetoric in your arsenal for those whose views on apologetics most closely resemble yours, but differ by a jot and a tittle from Van Til. Nah, only serious. That's said only partly in jest. Seriously, the partisan politics of some presuppositional cliques is enough to ensure that anyone with the resources to get apologetics to a mainstream audience is going to be sure to stay as far away from presuppositionalists 
as possible. Now, having just finished complaining so strongly about presuppositionalism and why it's not all that popular, I want to make sure I don't give the wrong impression. I am a presuppositionalist. I think these three factors, especially the first and the third, are a shame because presuppositional apologetics really does have a lot to offer those with the patience and the will to really delve into it. What exactly does it offer then? Well, that's what I'll be talking about when I come back. It's just your podcast, and quality original music is so expensive. So you'll just have to settle for something lame but adequate, and you won't have much choice of style, right? Wrong. Podcaster music, quality, range of style, and affordability. Bring your podcast to life. Visit podcastermusic.org. And we're back. Actually, it's been a couple of days since I left. I'm now continuing. I was out of town doing some stuff, and since then it's been really cold. And I have a cold again. It's winter here, so please do bear with that. Now, where were we? Yes, that's right. Let's let's lay out the nuts and bolts of a presuppositional apologetic. All right. In his famous debate with the atheist Gordon Stein in Irvine, California, a very famous debate in presuppositional circles, Greg Barnson said that the proof of God's existence is the impossibility of the contrary. What he was getting at when he said that is that you must take the existence of God as a given, because to take the contrary position, that there is no God, you end up with big problems. This is the difference in direction of a presuppositionalist method. Other forms of apologetics seek out claims that the opposition will agree with, other than the claim that God exists, because they won't agree on that, and then use those claims to reason towards belief in God. Now, presuppositionalism can be described that way, but it presents itself as seeking to show people that they must start their reasoning process with belief in God, because only then can we arrive at the claims that all of us, whether theistic or not, take for granted. Reasoning in this way, the presuppositionalist says that he is not willing to admit of intellectual common ground with the unbeliever. He says, no, no, you come over here and start where I am, because that's the only legitimate starting point. Rather than compromise by taking facts as neutral, and then using these supposedly neutral facts to get to God, the presuppositionless position is, we may be told, demanding that we start with God first. In reference to evidentialist varieties of apologetics, Van Til explains his main disagreement with them in these words. He says, This method compromises God, sorry, compromises God himself by maintaining that his existence is only possible, albeit highly probable, rather than ontologically and rationally necessary. Now, 
Actually, this really is to reason towards theism from premises that an unbeliever still accepts. Uh, some Vantilians are not students of philosophy, and they might not appreciate this, but logically, this argument has exactly the same form as an evidentialist argument. The classical apologist, apologist says, for example, we agree with unbelievers that there is morality, but unless there were a God, there couldn't be morality, so there must be a God. So they're taking the supposedly agreed-on fact of morality and reasoning towards God. That's how the moral argument works. The presuppositionalist says, there is a universe that makes sense, and we all agree on this. But unless we were to start by presupposing a creator God, we could never get to that fact about the universe, so there must be a God. Now, it doesn't matter if you use the words start or presuppose or not. It doesn't change the fact that the presuppositionalist is still starting with facts that he expects the unbeliever to grant, and then using them to reason inductively or probabilistically towards the existence of God. But let's look at the real positive contribution that presuppositional apologetics has made and can make. At the heart of the best version of presuppositional apologetics is what's called the transcendental argument for the existence of God, or TAG, TAG, as it has become known on the Internet. A transcendental argument is an argument that we need to posit a thing as actually existing in order for us to even to begin to reason about what, whether it's necessary at all. Here's an illustration of what a transcendental argument is like. This is not a transcendental argument, but it's, it's a real-world illustration of how it works. You're awake in the middle of a medieval night, say it's the year 1200, and someone wakes you up to tell you about something amazing, a flashlight. Now, could such a thing exist? Could a device so magnificent ever be constructed? You've never heard of such a thing. So you sit down with him and you begin to draw diagrams and write down complex formulae, and you start to doubt that this magical flashlight could ever exist at all. But then it occurs to you that it's the middle of the night. You have no oil in your lamp. So how are you able to read and write in the middle of the night? You turn to see your friend standing over your shoulder holding a flashlight. You've been working by flashlight as you sat there. Without the flashlight, you couldn't have even sat down to investigate whether or not there might be a flashlight. Transcendental arguments for theism work in a similar way, arguing that only by positing God's existence in the first place can we make sense of our ability to rationally inquire into his existence. Now, transcendental arguments themselves are nothing new at all. It, um, for example, in response to what he saw as an untenable scepticism resulting from David Hume and his empiricism, Immanuel Kant resorted to a transcendental argument. Whereas Hume concluded, basically, that one could not prove any propositions concerning morality, God, or natural causes even, Kant began by presupposing that, in fact, we can have real knowledge. And then he went about setting out to argue about what the necessary preconditions of this fact must be. A successful transcendental argument, said Kant, Kant, sorry, quote, shows that experience itself, and consequently the object of experience, is impossible without the connection indicated by these conceptions, as a proof of the truth contained in the conceptions in question. 
Now, basically, what that means is this. Transcendental arguments take the following form, which is, let's say, a transcendental argument for T. Okay. Premise 1, Q. Premise 2, a necessary precondition of Q is T. Conclusion, therefore, T. Okay. So Q is the case, but in order for Q to even be the case, it's necessary that T be the case, so T must be the case. That's a basic transcendental argument. So in the case of Christian apologists, the propositions making up T are theological ones, such as that there is a God, that he relates to the world in such and such a way, and so forth. Q, in this argument, represents some accepted phenomenon, like the existence of a sense-making world, the claim that we can have warranted belief and in the arguments of some presuppositionalists, the existence of the laws of logic itself. Only by first positing the reality of God can we even make sense of the existence of these things. That's how a transcendental argument goes. So that's the shape of a presuppositional apologetic. Let's, let's put some flesh on the bones then and piece together a complete transcendental argument. Now the first thing to do in explaining a, a presuppositional argument is to introduce the idea of a world view. Rather than dividing a person's belief system up into religious beliefs and secular beliefs, the presuppositional approach emphasizes the concept of a world view. Popular reformed philosopher Ron Nash, who by the way passed away just weeks before my blog, Say Hello to My Little Friend, came into existence, uh, Ron Nash provides one way to describe a worldview, saying that it is the, quote, set of beliefs about the most important issues of life. It is, to quote another philosopher, an overall perspective on life that sums up what we know about the world, how we evaluate it emotionally, and how we respond to it volitionally, end quote. But a worldview is not just a list of propositions. Because it is a basic perspective on reality, it is something that equips a person to form all the propositions they will form in the future. It is, to use a metaphor, the eyeglasses through which a person sees the world. It is possible for a person to have fundamental beliefs that commit to a general worldview, and yet still hold beliefs that are incompatible with that worldview. None of us are perfectly consistent, after all. But basically, the idea of a worldview emphasizes that our fundamental beliefs affect our other beliefs. Take, for example, scientific beliefs. Many a historian has noted that it is no accident that the revolutions in scientific thought and discovery happened in Christian nations, and to some extent in Muslim nations as well, rather than those parts of the world dominated by other systems of thought. Now by this I don't mean that the particular theories and findings of the new scientists of the Enlightenment were connected to theological beliefs, nor am I saying that those associated with the work of the new science were necessarily themselves Christians. Now we know that many of them were, but that's not the point here. I'm referring to the very scientific enterprise itself. Cultures in which the doctrine that the external world is nothing more than a dreamlike illusion, for example, simply did not make scientific breakthroughs. Likewise, societies in which it was normal to believe in, in gods who played tricks on people no less than humans might play tricks, have a possible defeater for any theory based on scientific discovery. 
How do you know that your God's not just playing a trick on you? The Christian, the Christian theistic worldview provided solid grounding for the scientific enterprise. We have a God who does not deceive people. Uh, we have a nature that is regular and dependable and predictable and so forth. But couldn't the naturalist say that his worldview, albeit in a different way, also provides a sufficient framework for doing science? In fact, some might even be tempted to say that only naturalism really provides a stable framework in which to do science. The universe is regular and predictable. There are no divine interventions or fabrications, no miracles, no surprises, so we can study it safely. But this is a little hasty and shallow, actually. How exactly does the naturalist know that the universe is predictable? I'm not questioning that he does know it. I'm sure he does. But how is the claim justified? How do we know that the way things behaved in the past is the way that they will behave in the future? Obviously we can't say, well, because in the past the future was like the past. The very question here is whether or not we can appeal to the past in determining what the future will be like. So we can't appeal to the past to settle the issue. How can we safely reason from specific instances, even millions and millions of them that we have observed, to universal or general rules that cover all the cases that we have not observed? Incidentally, this is what's called inductive reasoning. One example that Barnson has used is the example of a tube of toothpaste. Yesterday and every day prior to that, when you squeezed a full tube of toothpaste, toothpaste came out. Does that mean that each and every time somebody does this, toothpaste will come out? Well, how do you know? Now, you might think, as some skeptics who lack familiarity with the history of philosophy think, that this is just a bizarre, perhaps a little bit silly and novel line of argument. Well, no, it's not. It's actually one of the major problems in analytical philosophy of the last couple of centuries. It's called the problem of induction. Great skeptical thinkers like David Hume and Bertrand Russell of the 20th century have frankly admitted that although we use inductive reasoning all the time and we take it for granted, actually providing a philosophical justification for doing so is a fiendishly tricky task. In fact, both, both of those men said it was impossible. Here's the way that Barnson posed his challenge in his debate with atheist Edward Tabash. I'll play two clips from that debate that briefly sum up the argument from induction. At the end of the second clip, you'll hear somebody say, Time, Dr. Barnson. Now, that's just the moderator of the debate, letting Dr. Barnson know that his speaking time is up. Okay, so as we come to this point in the debate, Barnson has just spoken about her expectation about what toothpaste will do when we squeeze the tube. He then goes on to say this. We support that expectation in terms of two things. One, our past experience with toothpaste tubes. And two, the belief that nature is uniform, that the future is like the past. Without that second belief, we would not be able to learn from experience. We would not be able to use language. We would not be able to rely on memory or advanced science, all of which involve observing similarities and projecting them into the, into the future. Moreover, our belief about uniformity or the inductive principle is a very firmly entrenched belief. When scientists found that there were deviations in the expected uh, 
orbit of Uranus, they did not draw the conclusion, okay, nature is not uniform after all. That just impelled them to start looking for another factor as yet unknown that was influencing the orbit of Uranus. They did not give up the inductive principle, but they rather hypothesized the body, which, by the way, we now know to be the planet Neptune. And so from toothpaste to the planets, we believe and reason in terms of the inductive principle. And shortly thereafter in the debate, he adds the following. So now, do we have reason for believing the inductive principle? We need to set the Christian worldview, the theistic worldview, side by side with the atheist worldview, and ask which one comports with the inductive principle and thus provides the preconditions for science, language, learning, and any intelligible human experience. And I would say it's certainly not atheism. Atheism's view of reality and historical eventuation cannot provide a cogent reason for what all of our reasoning takes for granted. It is debunked by its philosophical arbitrariness at just this point, as even men like Hume and Bertrand Russell realized. Accordingly, it is most reasonable to believe in God and entirely unreasonable not to believe in God, for God's existence is the precondition of all reasoning whatsoever. And there you have it from Dr. Barnson. Now, just at this point, I want to pose a, a hypothetical question just for you to ponder. I won't dwell on it here. Do scientific beliefs that are based on a particular metaphysical understanding of reality count as secular or religious beliefs? You can think about that. I'll, I'll move on. I've looked at induction. Now let's look at morality. Recall a few episodes ago where I discussed the moral argument for theism, and David Hume's name popped up there as well. How, he asked, do we get the moral facts that we believe from natural facts? If unintended nature is all there is, then the idea of objective moral duties simply lacks any real-world justification. As with induction, this isn't to say that atheists do not live according to what they take to be real moral duties, any more than they don't use induction. Of course they do. But can their worldview account for either of these things? Here's another question to ponder. Do moral beliefs that are based on a particular metaphysical understanding of reality count as secular or religious beliefs? This generates the idea that presuppositionalists appeal to from time to time of what they call borrowed capital. So when the materialist in particular, when the naturalist, the atheist, uses the inductive principle or draws on moral claims, what he's doing, says the presuppositionalist, is borrowing from our worldview. His own worldview, naturalism, has no justification for these things. Now, they're true beliefs, all right, but they aren't generated by the atheistic worldview. They're generated by the theistic worldview. He's drawing from our account when he does this. So the point that the presuppositionalist makes is that philosophical naturalism does not offer a rebuttal to skepticism and it fails to provide a way of defending realism, any kind of realism, moral realism, scientific realism. Hume's greatest contribution to philosophy was to show that philosophers cannot do what so many of them think they can do. They cannot draw conclusions from induction. 
they cannot deduce moral claims from natural claims, and without a God to appeal to who created an orderly or purposeful universe, these problems are intractable, so Van Til's argument goes, and I think it is right here that Van Til is at his strongest. Putting Van Til's method into practice in another context, in the book Five Views on Apologetics, or is it four views? Where is it? Somewhere around here. Oh, I can't see it. It's four or five. It doesn't matter. Oh, oh, here we go. I have to know. Five views. There we are. Five views on apologetics. I found the book. Um, following William Lane Craig's brilliant presentation of, of the classical method, where he, he lays out the Kalam cosmological argument. I think he does. I have to check. But um, Van Til's pupil, John Frame, responds. And he happily concedes the argument's persuasive force, but he notes that the Kalam cosmological argument is not a neutral argument with respect to its presuppositions. He says, and I quote, I agree with Craig that the Kalam cosmological argument is a good argument, but it is only good on the Christian presupposition that the world is a causal order and therefore a rational order. Deny God, and you deny the need for a rational structure or for a causal order reaching back to a first cause. That is an awful price to pay for denying God, but some are willing to pay it. Rather than, uh, end of the quote by the way, rather than being willing to pay the price of scientific realism, induction, moral realism, common sense, and I use that term to refer to the philosophical movement by that name, or any other number of related things, unbelievers, so presuppositionless like Frame claim, continue to say and do things that they cannot account for given the constraints of their worldview. Returning to the two questions that I posed a few minutes ago, scientific or moral claims that require religious presuppositions are not secular, neutral claims. They are borrowed capital, and they presuppose supernaturalism, not naturalism. Now, when he outlined the approach of his transcendental apologetic, Van Til explained that the unbeliever needs to be persuaded that the way to see reality itself is to see it via the lens of belief in God, and that only in this way can he make sense of it. A lengthy quote from Van Til here. <clears throat> the method of reasoning by presupposition may be said to be indirect rather than direct. The issue between believers and non-believers in Christian theism cannot be settled by a direct appeal to facts or laws whose nature and significance is already agreed, agreed upon by both parties to the debate. The question is rather as to what is the final reference point required to make the facts and laws intelligible. The question is as to what the facts and laws really are. Are they what the non-Christian methodology assumes that they are? Are they what the Christian theistic methodology presupposes they are? The answer to this question cannot be finally settled by any direct discussion of facts. It must, in the last analysis, be settled indirectly. The Christian apologist must place himself upon the position of his opponent, assuming the correctness of his method merely for argument's sake, in order to show him that on such a position the facts are not facts and the laws are not laws. He must also ask the non-Christian to place himself upon the Christian position, for argument's sake, in order that he may be shown that only upon such a basis do facts and laws appear intelligible. 
to admit one's own presuppositions and to point out the presuppositions of others is therefore to maintain that all reasoning is in the nature of the case circular reasoning the starting point the method and the conclusion are always involved in one another End quote. in other words the best way for the theist to engage the non-theist is not to take the non-theist from where he is based on claims he accepts as facts but rather to seek to put her on the spot and defend the very acceptance of those basic facts in the first place in the hope of showing that so much of what she already affirms can only be defensibly affirmed against a supernatural backdrop for example rather than arguing about the possibility of the supernatural miracles and making appeals to natural laws as premises the theist should challenge the non-theist about the very ground she is standing on by challenging her on the very existence of such natural laws in the first place while i think that there is a good apologetic here i also think that van til and those who follow him imagined that they had an even more powerful argument when actually he did not and they do not van til made no secret of the fact that he thought he had an argument not merely against naturalism but actually an argument for biblical christianity a trinitarian faith van til's position when fully explained is extraordinarily ambitious it amounts to the claim that unless christianity as taught in the bible is presupposed no valid inference can be drawn about anything since only this system of belief could account for moral truths for the possibility of induction for making sense of our existence in the least or for rational thought when this is realized the instinct of most people including nearly all philosophers who are christians and who want to defend the christian faith is to recoil in intellectual horror at what appears to be this monstrosity put another way van til believed that he had a silver bullet he didn't have to so he thought tackle non-christian worldviews one at a time and show that they lack the necessary basis for intelligibility he thought that the argument just outlined did show that for all non-christian worldviews how exactly did he argue that his transcendental argument achieved this well here's where things get frustrating he never really explained exactly how his argument showed this he uses the term christian theism in his arguments like in the quote you just heard he talked about the christian theistic point of view but he never justifies that limitation he never justifies saying that it is christian theism that alone that provides the necessary grounding here um, he might be right that christianity provides a metaphysical basis of intelligibility and induction science morality and so forth it may even be the case in fact i think it is the case that naturalism fails in these areas he offers more complex arguments that christianity does in fact provide the solution to the problem of the one and the many and i won't go into the details of that here via its doctrine of the nature of god as a trinity but nowhere in any of his writings or in the writings of greg barnson for that matter will you ever find an argument for the claim that only christianity could ever supply these things i see absolutely no reason why judaism or islam although i think they are wrong would if true provide a perfectly adequate basis for say science and morality and so forth 
or take a version of Christianity that differed in a bunch of ways from regular Christianity. Instead of the Ten Commandments, they had eleven. Instead of a Saviour who was crucified and rose three days later, they believed in a Saviour who was hung and rose five days later. Instead of a Trinity, they taught that there were four persons in the Godhead. And, you know, add in a bunch of deviations like that. It's not really Christianity, of course. Now, as Christians, we'd say that they were wrong on all of those points, naturally. But there's no obvious reason to think that a religion like that would lack a basis of morality or intelligibility. In fact, that claim seems pretty crazy to me. What's frustrating about Vantillian apologetics is that the one claim that is most indefensible, namely their claim that only Trinitarian Christianity can account for all these things, is probably the most common claim you will read when studying their material. Van Til and his followers have given us a powerful apologetic, but it was not the apologetic that they thought it was. I'm going to stop there in my presentation of Van Til. But I haven't finished talking about presuppositional apologetics. Next time I'll be talking about, that's in episode 12, I'll be talking about another Christian philosopher with Dutch ancestry who has also presented what I think is best described as a transcendental argument for theism. But basically, it's a much stronger version that does not make Van Til's mistakes. Moreover, this philosopher is not identified usually with presuppositional apologetics. He's not part of the cult or the clique. His name is Alvin Plantinga. And it's my view that he ought to be seen as the one who has redeemed the best of Van Til's argument without actually drawing on Van Til's work. And Plantinga has presented us with a modified form of presuppositionalism that is the most promising yet. Stay tuned for that in the next episode. But for now, it is time for one of these. That's right, it's time again for This Week in History, 29th of June through to the 5th of July. June 29th, 1936, Pius XI issued an, an encyclical to American bishops entitled On Motion Pictures. June 29th, 1992, in the case Planned Parenthood vs. Casey, the Supreme Court upheld a Pennsylvania law mandating a 24-hour waiting period, anti-abortion counselling and parental consent for minors. That can't be right, it almost makes sense. June 30th, 2004, the United States officially hands Saddam Hussein over to the Iraqi government. July the 1st, 1643, the good old days, the Westminster Assembly convenes for the first time in the Henry VII Chapel of Westminster Abbey. Five years later, it five years, gosh, they muck around, don't they? Five years later, it published the Westminster Longer and Shorter Catechisms, which the Anglican Church rejected, but the Presbyterians accepted. July 2nd, 1505, a rainstorm in Germany helps launch the Protestant Reformation, who would have thought? While returning from a trip to visit his parents, Martin Luther, then a law student, was caught in a violent thunderstorm near Stottenheim. Fearing for his life, he cried, Help me, Saint Anne, I will become a monk. Within two weeks, he made good on his promise, but don't worry, he got better. June 3rd, 1989. In Webster v. Reproductive Health Services, the Supreme Court ruled that a Missouri law barring the use of public funds and facilities for abortions and prohibiting abortions by public employees was constitutional. July 4th. July 4th. What happened on July 4th, 1776? 
The American Continental Congress declares that the thirteen American colonies are independent of Britain. This event, Independence Day, is celebrated annually by Americans. These familiar words. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by, endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and so forth. July 5th, 1865, William Booth founds the Christian mission to work among London's poor and unchurched. Later, he changed the mission's name to the Salvation Army. July 5th, 1963, the Roman Catholic Church gave official approval to cremation. Previously, the belief in the resurrection of the dead made cremation repugnant to many Catholics. Well, that's all we have time for today. I'm surprised that my sinuses let me get through it. You'd be amazed at how many times I had to press pause on the recorder to launch into a coughing fit. Tune in next time. Episode 12 will be back with uh, a discussion of the apologetical method of Professor Alvin Plantinga, who I see as, whether he likes it or not, the true heir of the presuppositional and transcendental tradition. Until then, it's time to say goodbye from... Say hello to my little friend!